0: Hi, this is Serenya Nenthapuntala, founder of for a Green Environment, and I want to thank you for joining us today for another episode of Women in Environmental Science. This podcast is to inspire other people and to educate them about the work researchers in environmental science are doing, specifically the issues they face in the industry, the solutions they make, the roadblocks they push through, and most importantly, what they are learning to teach the society to keep the environment clean. Keep listening to hear this episode of Women in Environmental Science. Well, hello, Um, welcome to Women in Environmental Science. I'm Serenia Nandapuntala, and I have Miss Christine Shields with me. So thank you so much for coming, Miss Shields. Um, Yeah, so your work on climate science is very interesting. Uh, Could you explain to me what you do in your field and your research?
1: Sure, Sar- Saranya, this is, and first let me say that I'm very happy to be here and part of your, your, um, your whole project. So, I, am, I call myself a climate scientist. I'm actually a um, meteorologist by training. Um, I, uh, I, I, I studied meteorology in school and I sort of pivoted to climate science and what I do now is look at um, the hydrological cycle Mm -hmm. Uh, of the earth and mostly in different climate states. So past climates and future climates. And so what I mean by hydrological cycle is like the water cycle. So you know, clouds build, they rain, and then and then the water evaporates, and then you know it, you've got this cycle of you know where the water goes and where it comes from, and how that whole cycle completes um, different you know places around the globe. so mm-hmm. So I sort of my concentration is water cycle. And as I said, I look at things in the past and the future, so past like paleoclimates, uh, mm-hmm. so that's climates of the past, so I look at things really far into the past, like millions and millions of years into the past, and then we can sort of use that to inform the future. And then I also look into future states, because as we know, we are, uh, ha- we are experiencing global warming uh, with the with the increased uh, greenhouse gases that are into the atmosphere our climate is warming and so if we can run climate models to project into the future uh, what the earth would look what, what what the earth will potentially look like if we continue on you know just putting you know, Mm -hmm. uh, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And so then we can, we can, you know, try to figure out, well, this is what the earth will look like. And so, uh, you know, this is good, this is bad. (laughs) Well, actually, we try not to do the value judgments. But I mean, you can, you can infer, you know, with increase in extreme weather, you know, may not necessarily be a good thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we can try to use that information to um, adapt and mitigate what we're doing now. So I hope that so do I, do I need to explain what a climate model is? I probably
0: do. Yeah, if you want to, as um, far as sure. yours. Yeah,
1: so, okay, so climate models um, are, it's, a model is, in the way I, the term I'm using it, is, is like a glorified computer program. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have, we're on Zoom right now, which is, uh, you know, essentially a bunch of code that's telling, you know, the computer what to do and, you know, how to maneuver our windows and all that sort of stuff. So it's, it's uh, code is just like lines of instructions uh, that, the, that uh, you know, It's a program is telling the computer what to do. So a model is sort of like a really big computer program where uh, we give it, we calculate all these equations that represent processes that happen on the earth, like how the wind blows and how, you know, temperature changes and, you know, how clouds form, all these things Mm -hmm. we can actually quantify Uh, by, by, with equations. And so we solve, we do our best to solve these equations. They're very complicated. So we have to make certain assumptions. So, uh, so they're not perfect. Uh, You know, models Mm -hmm. never are perfect, but they are a good representation of what we, of, of, you know, what we, uh, want to represent and so that's sort of what the word model means you know so Mm -hmm. you're trying to represent something that's happening in the real world so um so anyway we try so computer a climate model is this glorified really complicated program to try to simulate what is actually happening on the earth and so we can i can take this model and i can run it for past periods and then i Mm -hmm. can take it and i can run it for future periods and then we can try to get under understanding of how the climate changes over time and what the, you know, how how the processes and everything changes and try to understand that. So yeah. I think I'll stop it there.
0: <laughs> so like um, your climate models, you're like crunching big numbers and,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. making
0: like predictions for the future.
1: That's yeah. right. Yeah. So it's, it's sort of like a weather forecast uh, model. So um, except, you know, whether forecast models—they're—they're they're actually simulating, like solving these equations to tr- try to predict what's going to happen tomorrow, whereas the climate models are trying to simulate decades and hundreds and thousands of years to try to project what's going to happen in the future. So it's not necessarily predict a prediction. It's um, because it's not—it's a sort of, you know. Um, it, they were not simulating exact dates. So I'm not saying like hundred years from today on July 1st, it's going to be, you know, this temperature and this precipitation. No, the climate models do not do that. What they do do is they tell you what the conditions are. So climate is sort of average weather, you know, mm-hmm. weather is like today, like in Colorado, it's really hot today. <laughs> it's like, you know, I think right now it's like 80 something and it's, you know, 10 o'clock in the morning you know, and it's going to be probably like 95 by four o'clock in the afternoon and it's sunny. So That's the weather. Um, mm-hmm. The climate of Colorado in the um, for summertime is hot and dry. So right. it's like it's usually hot and it's usually dry. Uh, we usually get, you know, some sort of thunderstorms in the afternoon. That's that's the average weather. So what we call mm-hmm. that that's what we expect for climate in Colorado. So so yeah, so that's so, sort of. I guess I'll stop there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. So like um, uh, what do like what's like a summary of what like the uh, future climates might look like? Oh, so
1: that's actually a hard question to answer because, um, you know, we have uh, because I'm using this model, right? I can I can tell it to do a lot of different things. I can say, well, let's say it's business as usual and we don't stop driving our cars and, you know, uh, right. you just sort of like businesses you like burning up all the CO2, you know, emissions and everything galore and, and don't really change our behaviors. um, Then it looks very, it looks quite warm. You actually have to go back. If you, if you're looking at the global, um, or if you look at the Earth's history, mm-hmm. we can go back millions of years where it was super hot. Uh, and then we actually have like a fossil type data that can tell us around what the temperatures were. And we can paint a picture of what the globe sort of like. So, you know, if we're going business as usual, in the amount of CO2 that's in the atmosphere and how warm that makes the air really have to go back like almost, uh, you know, um, you, uh, you know, Fifty million years to get that type of of, of heating. So it's a, um, it's a. We're actually significant. If we do business, do business as usual, we are going to be make a, a really significant impact on the 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 Earth. It'll be, you know, likely all the, um, uh, you know the, we won't have many glaciers left. Right. Uh, you know the the equator. The, the countries that, are, that live in the equator or the subtropics are going to be probably, you know, uh, very hot. There's the sea level is going to be much higher than it than it is now, so there'll be islands that are, you know, above water now that will be underwater. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, and the temperate temperatures that we're experiencing, say, like in the United States, might be more in the like you know Canadian band sort of a thing. So, yeah. um, so that you know, so I mean, there there is a lot that, um, I mean, it's, I can't really say one thing about Mm -hmm. what's going to happen with the globe other than, you know, globally, it's going to be warmer everywhere. Uh, But some places will be drier, some places will be wetter. Mm -hmm. You know, a rule of thumb that people tend to use is the, where where it's dry, it's going to get drier, and where it's wet, it's going to get wetter but mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily hold across all places around the globe. So so you really need to look at a place in like a region individually to sort of understand what what it will look like. So, you know, um so anyway, that's why I say it's a sort of a complicated question to mm-hmm. answer. Um but but yeah. So 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 that's like a business as usual. And then we have other different scenarios we can try to run that that are just let's say you know, we stop our missions right now where they are at and we keep them level. What will the world look like? Well, actually the world won't look like much different than it is today. Um, so that is a really good scenario. If we can actually scale back what we're doing and, you know, adapt and mitigate a little bit, mm-hmm. um, we can prevent the vast majority of the damage, which means we'll still have glaciers, we'll still have sea ice and poles, um, and, you know, we'll there are some places it will be underwater but not everywhere, you know, so it is so and then there's different gradients of of, of different scenarios you can use and like from the not so great to, you know, to, you know, something that's sort of like today as we as we exist right now. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so, so that's the beauty of a climate model. We can play with play, play with a lot of these different scenarios and try to project what the earth may look like um, just based on, you know, what we do. <laughs>
2: right. So
1: there is a, a there is an organization called the IPCC. Have you, have you heard of this? It's the intergovernment panel for climate change or, or I might be actually getting that wrong intergovernment, uh, panel, intergovernment panel for uh, yeah, climate change, IPCC. I'm sorry. Um, uh, <laughs> <that, good>. yeah, <laughs> that I, I don't, I should have, I should actually know that off the top of my head, but, um, So that so this is a, as I said, it's a it's a worldwide international effort from with climate scientists and beyond actually social scientists as well um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, that try to look at different scenarios for the future and then give give recommendations to policymakers, and so uh, you know what well, I've been involved with the physical science part with running these simulations and analyzing them, and then the social scientists take that information and then they then they give their information of this, which is the best way to adapt, uh, mm-hmm. and then they rec- and then we have like there's a summary for policymakers and they give this to governments to say this is what you need to do um, to try to prevent. You know, the worst case scenario. And so we've been doing this for decades now, <laughs> every four to six years. I can't remember now that the, the interval, but, um but yeah, so if you want to, you can Google IPCC, and then you can see what the world is trying to do and the world scientists are trying to do to um, help with the problem. So,
0: right. Yeah, so like the moral of the story. Yeah, let's stop <laughs> emitting greenhouse gases, and we'll be at a more controlled temperature. Yeah. So how do fossils um, tell you about what the temperatures were like? Because that's very interesting.
1: Yeah. So um, we call this um, proxy observations. By the word proxy, meaning it's not a direct observation, but we're taking something and we're we're inferring things from it to give us an estimation of what. You know whatever variable looking at like temperature precipitation mm-hmm. so um so things like um you know fossil like a uh, leaf you know leaf imprintations and sediments or something or like pollen samples and soils or or things or like a, a good example maybe you would be aware of it like ice cores, right so we we take and the antarctica has a very you know Um, as a famous, I guess, you know, the ice core uh, at Vostok, where they, you know, drill Mm -hmm. into the ice, and they extract a bunch of, uh, you know, a core of ice, and then they can analyze the atmosphere and the air bubbles from the ice and tell you what the, what, what, what uh you know what the chemical breakdown was is what how much carbon dioxide was there how much oxygen was there you know and like Mm -hmm. and then you can actually look at flavors of carbon to see if you know you can tell um you can by its by its uh structure by its uh, atomical structure you can tell if it's uh was uh burned with from you know some sort of fossil fuel, like mm-hmm. you know like uh you know oil or gas or whatever, or you can tell if it was um you know uh, emitted uh you know it was more of a natural thing like you know a, a, deal, having to do with plants or something like that so mm-hmm. um so you can you can you can learn a lot by uh by by analyzing these fossils and then and then you know by by figuring out how much carbon dioxide is there you can figure out what the temperature is um mm-hmm. so and then other types of proxy things are like you know they're you know crocodile teeth and you know f- they're finding crocodile teeth and and sediment cores in the poles, or something like that. So, in order for a crocodile to be living in the pole, well, it's got to be pretty warm, right? So, yeah. you would infer that the temperature is warmer um, because uh, you saw, because you have this type of fossil at this location or this latitude or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, over time, the, you know, you also have to take into consideration how the Earth's ge- geography has changed over time. If you go back right. millions of years, you actually have what we call Gondwana right? oh, yeah. or Pangea, right? Mm-hmm. It's one big blobby, earth, you know, land, and it was water everywhere else. And so, so because the because of plate tectonics, you know, the the uh, the where the topo- where the land is and where the ocean is has changed over time. And so, um, so you take that into consideration too when you're, of course, you know, looking at what period you're looking at for your fossils and for a temperature or, or how wet it was for something like you know you know for a certain type of plant to have existed you know if you see you you have an imprint of their of the outline of the of the plant in a rock in you know, order for that type of plant to have existed you, you need you know that there had to have been you know this type of climatic condition or something like that does that I hope that makes yeah. sense yeah it does yeah, yeah.
0: I really I got I, I understood that perfectly okay good <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so like is there um I just, this question just popped into my head. Is there like, uh, some type of like good coal that is better to use that is more, um, green, I guess, and doesn't emit as much, um, carbon dioxide in the air?
1: Yeah. I don't know the answer to that question. I, you know, um, I know there's, you know, there was, there's been movements afoot for clean coal and I'm not sure I really understand that. Um, so I, 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 don't know how to answer that question. I don't know anything about that, so right. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to answer that. But but um, but it is a very good question. Uh, like, what does clean coal actually mean? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not sure actually. <laughs> <laughs> that's so that would be, be a question for someone who, who, who knows that. So you can save that question for someone else. Uh, and question.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. So, um, going back to like the climate models, how mm-hmm. is the past able to tell us what to do in the future? Like, it's like that even for like world history too, like mm-hmm. we have to learn from the past to do better in the future.
1: Right. So, yeah. So if we understand like, uh, how climate worked in the past, we can actually sort of use that as a as a guide to what's going to happen in the future. So, I mean, there's certain things in physics that don't change, like you know the actual physics of how the, of the greenhouse effect is something mm-hmm. that we've known for over a hundred years. Okay, like two hundred yeah. years, right? So, you know, you. Emit a greenhouse gas such as carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. You can do this in the laboratory and then the temperature goes up. Right. I mean, just because mm-hmm. of the way the properties, you know, it, how it emits it, it absorbs, you know, the gases and then it emits, uh, you know, uh, heat. Uh, so, um, so it's the greenhouse effect, like a greenhouse, like, you know, you grow plants in or whatever. It's, mm-hmm. it's, that, that's sort of the concept. So, um, so, So we know these sort of principles, right? So, so you, you know, we, through fossils and proxy data, we can under, we sort of have an idea of certain, you know, what certain, you know, climates were like in the past, right? And then, and then we take like a climate model and then we, we give it all these inputs of like, you know, we call them boundary conditions. (laughs) It means is we're telling the model it's constraints. It's like, we need you to run, you know, calculate these equations. And this is what the greenhouse gases were like. And this is what the solar, you know, this is what the sun was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is what the orbit around the sun was doing, you know, because there's things called Milankovitch parameters is big name, um, that sort of tell you, um, that sort of, uh, W- that um, describe what the earth does in its orbit around the sun. So there's a few things like, you know, with the tilt of the sun, I mean, the tilt of the earth, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's, we're on an axis the, the earth isn't really standing point of this way. It's right. at the act, the earth is actually tilted a little bit. Mm-hmm. So how much of that tilt is, you know, along the axis you know, and here's the sun over here, okay, and then here's your axis. Like, if you're when your tilt is further, the part, the northern hemisphere of the Earth is actually going to be closer to the sun, so right. it's going to get more heat from the sun, mm-hmm. right? And then this is going to get less, right? And so, you know, this oscillates, I actually, you know, like you know, tens of thousands of years, okay? So, mm-hmm. you know, every ten thousand years or so, you know, you have an ice age. <laughs> as far, you know, on the at the, at the pole that's further away mm-hmm. from the sun because it's not getting as much heat or something like that. So that's one thing, like the tilt of the earth is a big thing. And then there's like, you know, is, is the orbit around the sun a circular or is it elliptical, right? Mm-hmm. And that will, you know, if it, if, it, if it orbits around in a circle, you know, it's, you know it, it all points is going to be sort of equal to the distance of the sun. But if it orbits around in an ellipse, at the end points, it's going to be further away from the sun, mm-hmm. and so you're going to, it's going to be colder when it's further away, and warmer when it's closer, right, you know, and so, so things like that, and that, those types of things will determine if there's an ice age, or if there's a not ice age, and these these long tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of years processes that, that happens, okay, mm-hmm. so um, I, I think I'll get around to answering your question, <laughs> Full, you know understanding what we 're talking about and what we 're talking about, the different cycles that the Earth experiences over time mm-hmm. so, um, so so we can run the model telling giving it all of these you know boundary conditions saying. I, the orbit needs to be this. The tilt needs to be this. The sun needs to have this much solar output. Um, and this is what we think with the greenhouse gases. Where, and we do this all based on what we think, based on what we've determined from proxy data. And then this is what the land sea distribution is like. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then we press go with the model. It's a little more complicated than that. But, you know, let's just say we press go. And then the model calculates all these things. And we come up with a climate over the Earth that, you know, looks at certain things. And so then we can actually analyze how these different feedbacks on the earth work with each other so it's like there's let's say it's a really warm period there's no um sea ice there's no glaciers you know the poles are warm everything is warm and then we the jets that you know bring us our weather are shifted a little bit differently in these mm-hmm. periods and so how that wind how the winds are moving things around combine with like the interactions of you know, you know uh, how many, how many, how much cloud do we have, and and what are the, what's the circulation of the ocean like? All these things interact with each other, and so, and vi- we call that dynamics, like climate dynamics. How mm-hmm. these things interact with each other, we can try to understand, and and these are basic physical processes. So this is like the physics itself isn't changing; it's just the forcing that's changing. Mm-hmm. So we understand the processes of how these things interact. We can take that information and we can say, well, in the future, you know, we're not going to have any ice caps. So what does that mean in terms of what's that going to do to the jet stream, right? So we go back and we look at, well, what did it do to the jet stream back in this period when it was super warm and there was no ice caps? Well, this happened to the jet stream. And so Mm. we can say, well, you know, this is, you know, you know, Based on historical information, it seems like we know we can, physics may you know will will cause this to hap- may ha- cause this to happen in the future so we uh, try to understand what you know these different interactions were in the past and we can apply that to what Potentially could happen in the future now everything is not a perfect experiment because like the ge geolo- the le sea yeah. distribution 's different, and you know all, all in the, and now there 's humans on this face of the earth which are a big wild card, right if there was no humans, I think it would be an easier. To under To figure out what exactly will happen in the future, because we're the wild card, right? because you know mm-hmm. we're, we can do many different things we can right. we can keep it going or we can pull it back or we can geoengineer um, you know all these things that we could potentially do to throw another you know thing at the earth to to, to you know <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. do.
1: so but anyway, does that sort of make sense is how we yeah. apply the the past to the future okay?
0: yeah, so like- okay like um, I I get like how um, the ice caps are actually very important to things like um, like the global conveyor belt too so like um, could you explain just like how um, this like climate engine let's say is like important um, to the the climate yeah
1: yeah, just hold on a second. I realized I didn't plug in my computer, so I'm going to do so I don't die on you. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, um so the global conveyor belt. Yes, this is a good question. So this is ocean circulation. So in the climate role, we actually call this something. We call it the thermohaline circulation and thermo meaning temperature, haline meaning salt, and then circulation. So this is a circula- o- this is how the currents in the ocean move based on temperature and based on salt and mm-hmm. so and so it's just like the currents you know and the jet streams in the atmosphere you know the ocean is a fluid just like the atmosphere is a fluid there except you know the time scale is a little bit different atmosphere fluid you know goes pretty fast and the ocean mm-hmm. is a much slower um, but they're both fluids and so when you have when you have colder temperatures in the air and in the water, it's denser, so it sinks. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so the added thing in the in the ocean is the salt. So if you have uh, saltier um, conditions, that actually increases the density because you're adding mass
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, with the salt, and then it uh, then it sinks as well. So cold and salty will cause the what the the circulation to the water to go down Mm -hmm. warm and fresh fresh water will cause it to rise um so so different parts around the world will have cold and salty water and different parts around the world have warm and fresh water and so it's so it's these positions that basically drive this the thermohaline circulation or the conveyor belt and what it does is it actually it serves to actually transport heat from like the you know different parts of mostly like the equator area right it, it'll tr- mm-hmm. t- transport that heat poleward right to try to redistribute the heat you know that the jets in the atmosphere do this do the same thing right the mm-hmm. earth wants to want you know, like the the jet stream that we have in the in the atmosphere in the mid-latitudes right it's all so we look at a weather map it's all curvy right mm-hmm. all that is doing is it's just trying to even out the temperature it's trying to redistribute the heat it's taking the heat that's in the equator and it wants to throw it in the poleward and the and the cold air is you know you know, moving down towards the equator. So, I mean, that's the purpose of that is to redistribute the, the heat. Um, and so, in it, and, and it works the same way with the global conve- conveyor belt as well. So when you, um, so the danger with a golder, golden, uh, golden, the uh, global conveyor belt is um, in the past, it has slowed down and right. it has slowed down when there's been a catastrophic event. To uh, cause all of like a, a bunch of fresh water to to melt. So like you have a polar ice cap, you know, something in the sea ice in the poles, or glaciers in the in the over Greenland or something. And there's a catastrophic event, and it causes a lot of melt all at once. Mm-hmm. And so then you have all this fresh water sitting on top of the cold water that is cold and salty. Normally that 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 sinks. Um, so now it's not salty anymore. It's fresh at the right. top, right? And mm-hmm. it doesn't really want to sink. So, it, but it's still cold, so it sinks a little, right? So instead of you know, you know, plummeting down, plummeting, but I mean going quickly, relatively speaking, down. We can measure this. We call it measure the units called sphere drops. Um, mm-hmm. So for your for the ocean circulation. Um, you know, it it's lat it 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 is much slower, and so it slows down this conveyor belt, and that actually can um, cause uh, um, the the less heat to be uh, distributed into the poles, and and then it might it, start, it actually starts to cool things down. So you there was a there was a movie called I don't know what it was, but it basically was like some catastrophic event, and like you know, we had an ice age instantly or something in North America or whatever, but uh, <laughs> so this is probably taking this concept to the extreme. There have been, uh, events in the past called, there are, you know, abrupt climate changes where, you know, like in the 50 to 100 years or so is abrupt in a ge- geological, um, Timescales, you you have you've had one of these catastrophic, really intense melt events, and mm-hmm. it did slow down the global conveyor belt, and then uh, and then it you know the the uh, the sea ice and the glaciers crept uh, you know um, southward. So you have uh, so you have like you know more. And then it actually became cold, so it was a negative feedback. So you had something that caused things to melt right really quickly, and that, but the Earth actually compensated for it. Uh, with it, the feedbacks that caused it to, you know, reverse, you know, its course. Um, mm-hmm. And so if there has been, I know there's talk about like, well, what if this can happen in the future if we have like all of Greenland melt at once? So this is where climate models have been useful. It's like we can show that you really need a lot, like a in a very short period of time, a, a huge, uh, intensity of uh, water to to melt all at once, you know, uh, to actually cause this sort of thing. And it's very, very unlikely that that will happen. Um, You know, just based on a lot of it in the past had to do with the the land-sea distribution and Mm -hmm. like where things sat. And so I think uh, just based on today's geography and the fact that the melting, it's probably not going to be as qu- as quick as maybe some of these past abrupt events. Um, it, it's just not going to be able to, it's just not going to slow down the conveyor belt right. enough that we would reverse our global warming. <laughs> so, um, yeah. but yeah, so that's what the models are telling us. So,
0: mm-hmm. yeah.
1: Did that, did that answer your question? I mm-hmm. hope Yeah. sometimes I feel like I go off on a tangent and then I forget where I was coming, where I was going initially. So <laughs> no,
0: it, it, your answers are amazing. I love okay. you like, you like, um, actually give me a lot of insight so that I can actually understand what you're going to say. Oh, now. good,
1: good, so. good. Okay. <laughs> so,
0: um, how did you get interested in like doing like climate science or, um, uh, you said you, uh, learned meteorology at school yeah right? so like yeah how did you get interested in doing that
1: oh so okay so as a kid i was total weather weenie we call her this is like a little affectionate term that those of us who are really into the weather call each call each other weather weenie (laughs) I don't know if, if that's the still the term you know maybe not now but back when I was your age yes we called each other that um so I was like totally always into the weather I just like love you know looking at the clouds and like why is the sky blue and boy that rainbow is beautiful and you know I was just really into it so so I um I was, you know, I was good at school, so I sort of decided that I wanted to go learn meteorology. I took, in high school, I actually took a class at a local um, uh, community college on the weather, and actually it was weather and geology class, both combined together, and it was really interesting, and it totally got me interested and so I applied to um schools that had a good meteorology program and so so i my original attempt was to become a forecaster and so that's actually what i did i was a when i I went to Penn state mm-hmm. and I um got my undergraduate degree in meteorology there i I was on the campus weather service I worked for AccuWeather for a short time um I did forecast the weather and then um and then I decided that Forecasting the weather made it, like, it made it too, uh, it was, it was like the, the day-to-day stuff was, was very um, intense and I stopped really enjoying big weather events. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. if it was like a big snowstorm, I was like, because I knew my work would be, the work day would be really stressful. And so, so I decided I want to study the weather not predict it. So I went back to grad school and I got my master's. In uh, atmospheric science and then and then I um came out to Boulder, Colorado, to work at the National Center for Atmospheric Research uh doing climate analysis type stuff and i and i've been there ever since, and just sort of you know moved from different project and up the chain a little bit and here I am now studying you know atmosphere climate and climate dynamics and all sorts of different uh geological periods it's it's been sort of a, it's been very I've been very very fortunate uh, mm. that I um, have managed to you know leverage what I really loved as a kid into yeah. a career so I I know that's not the case for a lot of people and I feel extremely fortunate to be have been able to do that so anyways which is one of the reasons why I want to give back to people mm. I want to encourage others to follow their dreams yeah <laughs> Yeah. So I hope that answered your question.
0: hmm. It did. <laughs> OK. <laughs> right. And um, I hear I actually interviewed someone who did uh, who's doing atmospheric chemistry. So um, how important is atmospheric chemistry and understanding like climate change and what's going to happen in the future?
1: So yeah, atmospheric chemistry isn't my field, but I'll tell you what I do understand. I mean, it's, uh, you know, there are things like um, emissions and um, chemistry that happens on water particles and cloud particles in terms of it's, whether or not it's pollution from cars or if it's just natural from like bio, you know, uh, pro- biogeo types of processes like fires or, mm-hmm. you know, volcanoes or whatever. Um, you know the how what the chemical constituency is and how that and 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 those chemical processes on you know will impact um you know the the clouds and the clouds will impact the climate and so anything you know the clouds cloud cover uh over the earth is is one of the most important um parts of 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 what keeps of, of, of our climate. You know, if there's a, a a nice cloud cover, it actually, you know, at night, it keeps the temperature warm, you know, underneath it. It's sort of like a blanket, yeah. uh, it, you know, but if too much cloud doesn't let enough sun go through and then it can get cold during the day. And and so, you know, mm-hmm. depending on, you know, like what happens with our clouds um, is, a, is extremely important in terms of like what the climate, the Earth's climate is. And it's also... One of the biggest uncertainties. It's something that because they're very complicated, and uh, there's a lot to, to left to learn about how clouds interact with different, you know, um, processes and things. And so, yeah. um, different types of clouds do different types of things. So, so the chemistry is very important. Important yeah. with the clouds, um, and just you know, just like just how it transports, or like how the, you know, with the, you know. Um, what the, w- once we emit certain things, how that is transported around right. uh, the globe is also very important. Um, and then, you know, there, there is talk of doing, uh, geoengineering types of things, or I think we're call I think it's being called something different now, like cli- climate adaptations or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, but, um, there's different proposals for different things out there. And some of them, you know, I would pause before I might, you know, uh, Embrace it wholeheartedly because we don't really understand the consequences. This is where the models will help us like if we, if we put sulfate into the clouds and the upper parts of the atmosphere. uh, To keep the sun from uh, more to keep to sort of minimize the sun that's getting down to the surface that might mitigate the global the, the, the temperatures a little bit in terms of global the global warming, but what are the consequences of that in other parts of the climate dynamic system right. um, that we talked about that how the different feedbacks are mm-hmm. um, you know so there so this is where models help us so we, we need to like research these things to to understand what we should and should not do um, mm-hmm. and so I think you know m- my personal philosophy, not everyone's is that um that uh, mitigation and adaptation is the way. I don't necessarily think that um, adding particulate into the atmosphere is a wise move at this point. But, yeah. Yeah, but that's my opinion. There are different mm-hmm. people have different opinions on that. Correct. I mean, we could become desperate enough that people will do it, um, but I'm hoping that we can, as a global community, scale back enough on what we're doing so we don't have to do something like that. Right. Um, yeah. So anyway, so I so anyway, not a chemist, but that's you know, mm-hmm. it's important. <laughs> yeah. Bottom definitely. line.
0: Yeah. So like um there there are some so like uh going back to climate change, there's like some people who don't think climate change is man made and they don't think that it kind of affects humans, right? Um so if you have like the chance to change their mind, uh what would you tell them?
1: So you know the biggest Thing that i hear from people arguments from people who don't believe climate change is happening or or climate change is a problem
2: mm-hmm.
1: um is that uh well the earth has gone through lots of natural cycles which is what we've talked yeah. about earlier right well you're absolutely true um but the and so it's like well it, you know the world's been super warm before and we're we're all just fine we're still here it's like okay well there's a couple things um, number one When the Earth was this warm, there were no humans on it. (laughs) Uh, That's like sort of like the number one. Right, Um, like the uh,
0: like the um, the fish weren't emitting CO2.
1: Yeah. But the other thing I would say is the, is it's the rate of change that we care about, not necessarily the change. Right. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So what I mean is, you know, when, when we go back, like the ice ages, like with the tilt, right. That's tens of thousands of years it takes to do that. It's just a long, slow burn. Right. Mm-hmm. If, you know, humanity has only been here for uh, several hundred thousand years, I probably have that number wrong, but, but I mean, um, you know, the time scales of humans and just, and, and, and how we need, how long we, how long we need to adapt to things um, is like, you know, really small. And the things, the changes that have happened in the past have taken, you know, millennia, millions of years sometimes mm-hmm. to actually change, you know, as the, the CO2 content um, based on natural processes, like weathering, and, um, you know, the, the cycles of the, you know, the ocean absorbing carbon dioxide and emitting it and things like that. So those things are much slower, 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 slower. What we're doing now is extremely fast. We're, you know, I would say it's like the order of magnitude is like decades, right? As mm-hmm. opposed to even, you know, it's, you know, 10, 20, 30, whatever decades, as opposed to thousands of years, that's several orders of magnitude. I mean, even if we say hundreds of years, it's still something, it's not, it's not something that we can adapt to quickly as a, as a, as a global community. Mm-hmm. So it's the rate of change that's the problem, it's not necessarily the change. So yeah. that's what I would tell people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I hope, yeah, yeah. maybe they, would, you know, the thing is, is people that don't uh, understand or, or want to accept uh, climate change, you know, maybe believe so for personal reasons or not necessarily rational reasons. Mm -hmm. And so I I find sometimes it's for people, you know, there are people that you can discuss and then you can convince, um, but there are other types of people that, you know, just maybe it's a religious belief or maybe there's some other reason that they just don't want to hear it. And so there's not much you can actually do to change those minds, um, you know, unfortunately. Yeah. I've been trying. <laughs> so you know, I'm trying to do here right now. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, part of it is trying to get into their space and try to communicate to them in their language, you know, which, you mm-hmm. know, is great. Um, and that's, you know, doing what you're doing, you know, maybe they will be, at some point, it'll sink in, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe they'll find that the, a light bulb will go on and say, you know, I really should, uh, pay attention to this or whatever. Right. Um, Yeah. But it's, yeah, it's a long game, right? It's the long game. It's not the short game. So, yeah.
0: And I know there are, like, some climate scientists who are, like, using their research to try to, like, connect human health, because obviously we care about that, to, like, climate change, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yes, absolutely. That's right. You know, I – there there is a, a growing community of of people that are actually trying to do that, which I think is a very important it's it's part of these like next steps I think i mean we have we understand the basics of the physical science and how climate change works mm-hmm. um, you know so you know then then we need to make our next steps so the next the next steps are um you know w- how do we you know uh, you know, how, so what's this, so how does this affect, you know, social, you know, our social communities mm-hmm. and, you know, our health and what do we need to do it to adapt and, and then we need to figure out, you know, like with, for the physical side, you know, like there are definitely unanswered questions like, you know, what really are the role of clouds and aerosols, mm-hmm. you know, so, yeah. and, and how those interact and uh, different types of clouds and things like that. Anyway.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> um, I read that you did research on like um, how uh, about on like the climatic situation of um, the latest permeate or like the mass extinction. Yeah, the
1: mass extinction. Okay. Yeah. Could you could you elaborate more on that? So, yeah, so I did this in collaboration with another colleague of mine, Jeff Keel. uh, He's at University of uh, California Santa Cruz right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And and, uh, he and I uh, ran the climate model for the the Permian, which was the 250 million years ago. So one of our ideas at the time was to... run the climate models for the various mass extinction events and Mm -hmm. to determine whether or not uh you know the mass some you know like what what was the purpose what was the cause of the mass extinction was it climatic you know Mm -hmm. and the permian the proxy evidence sort of suggested that it was actually a climatic decline and that's why there was a mass extinction um like something like the the um where the the dinosaurs were extinct um, with the with the asteroid event that that hit that hit. So there was you know for a while that was like okay well you know asteroid hit that's what wiped the dinosaurs out. It wasn't necessarily climatic it was more of an impact but if you know if you look back in time you actually see that there was a slow decline uh, of climatic conditions that were unfavorable for the dinosaurs and the asteroid was just the last sort of thing that wiped it out. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so we wanted to look at mass extinction events um, just to to understand what the climate was. And so with the Permian, a lot of though the climate modeling that had been done in the past were mostly, um, uh, they they weren't, um, so the climate model that I, 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 we run is we call it an earth system model where Mm -hmm. we solve equations for the atmosphere we solve it for the ocean we solve them for the land we solve them for the sea ice and we you know and then we sort of couple all of these things together there's all sorts of different these spheres that we're actually interacting with Um, but it's very complicated model and so previously uh, the only type of modeling that had been done for the permian was just looking at the atmosphere itself mm-hmm. it not really feeding back or understanding bringing the ocean into it or just looking at ocean which because uh, because of one of the things about the permian permian was that life in the oceans died that was like because right. it was the most of the most life at that time was actually aquatic and so most so that that mass extinction had Pretty much to do with the marine the marine animals that died mm-hmm. um so so what, what was going on in the ocean to kill off all the animals you know so, um, so, so there was maybe just like these ocean models that did it. There wasn't, a, uh, there weren't any models that actually used these fully, these sophisticated, fully coupled, multiple feedback types of, you know, models where you had the atmosphere, ocean, land, ice, all coupled together and talking to each other. So, mm-hmm. so we had actually uh, showed that, um, e- that there was, you, that the climatic conditions were definitely um, such that it, the oceans ran you know certain parts of the oceans went we call anoxic, which means there's like lack of oxygen mm-hmm. and so the and that was you know part of the- re, one of the reasons why the all the animals could you know not really make it uh in the oceans and that um uh, uh yeah so and and the and the circulations of the ocean like slowed down just because of uh the climatic conditions everything was sort of uh, um the, it was pretty much too warm and not enough oxygen. So that's not
0: a good combination. Yeah.
1: So um, yeah. And so I think, um, and, and previously the model, the models that have been run on the Permian compared to what the proxy data was saying didn't really jive. And, and our, our study actually was one of the first to show that this the, was sort of like verify what the proxy evidence was showing. And, and it showed also the importance of coupling what I call coupling is like having these different you know mm. ap- uh different you know, atmospheric talk to ocean, talk to the back to the atmosphere and talk to the okay. ice and land and blah, 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 blah. Right. All these things, feedback, we call that coupling to have these like fully coupled climate or system models. Um, the value of them is really important, even for something that was 250 million years ago. Right. I mean, the value of that coupled model, I think, was, had been shown for modern and for future, but it hadn't really been shown for past. And so mm-hmm. um, so that, I th- that was sort of, I think, the important part of that study. Um, is it's just sort of like um, it's not that you know we were we, we show that some new thing was happening in the Permian that no one really understood before. We were just saying the models can uh, are, if you do if you show these things, the models can agree with the with the proxy uh, evidence, and it, it just it highlighted the value of using that type of a tool. Right. So. Yeah. yeah like it's so important
0: anyway. to like connect all the different yeah together
1: exactly yeah so yeah and so and and so in some ways also like you know you have the data proxy people and the model people were getting different answers and so you know this was like saying oh well you know what i think this proxy evidence is actually you know right or you mm-hmm. know yeah. but you know as much as a model can be right you know there's there's you know their models are never perfect but mm-hmm. um but but they can really help us inform what's going on uh, even in the future, (laughs) past and future, whatever. So yeah, did that answer your question about like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I can talk more on, I'm not really a paleogeologist. I'm more of a climate modeler. So I can talk more intelligently on the climate modeling aspects than I can on the the paleogeology, but I do know a little bit about it. Um, (laughs) but it was, yeah, it was the, the Permian was the greatest mass extinction of all time. Um, some people are arguing we're under a mass extinction right now. That's, that's actually what I was going to ask. Like, like, what do
0: you think about that? Like, do you think that's going to happen or like what?
1: Well, um, you know, I, as I said, it's like, this isn't really my field, but I do look at, you know, I do, I read the literature and it, it does seem compelling that, um, Like we are, the more we, like the Amazon is, you know, losing a species a day or something like that. So just based on, um, you know, the deforestation and burning and things that are happening to clear cut for, you know, uh, modern, modern purposes, farming and uh, Mm. oil and all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, so I think, uh. I think we are in danger of uh, having a mass extinction. I think, you know, these mass extinctions, it's not like, it's not like this, it's, they're all not like the asteroid that hit and wiped out the dinosaurs, you know I mean? They're usually, most of them are this slow burn, right? Mm-hmm. And as I said, the timescales is a really long time scale. And maybe, you know, hopefully we'll, humanity will sl- survive into the future and we'll look back on this period and say, yeah, that was happening then, but you know we were clueless about it. <laughs> well, not some of us are clueless about it, or whatever. Yeah, <clears throat> but I think we are in danger of actually wiping out things that um,
0: that shouldn't be wiped out. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So, like, are there? Um, I think I've been talking more about like the geology aspect of things, right? So, like, are there any like um things that you would like to talk about? Um, yeah. To like to uh, talk about the world.
1: Oh, I don't know. I've talked about a lot so far. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. Um, I guess I think, um, you know, I'm b- I give my hat off to you to for doing this sort of a thing. I think what you're doing is fantastic. Um, and I encourage all of, you know, you young people, in particular women and young, <laughs> young girls, and, you know, to get out there, don't be afraid of science. Science is, we need more of us in science than, uh, you know, persistence, confidence, uh, believe in yourself, you know? Yeah. 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 All that's some really like great advice. Them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um,
0: yeah. Uh, just like, um, one of my last few questions, um, what, um, uh, well, you just gave some really good advice, yeah, yeah, but like, yeah. <laughs> what other advice would you okay. give to like someone who's trying to go down this path or like, what would they need to learn?
1: Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. So, yeah, well, of course, math and science are very important. Those are, uh, math is your, is going to be your base, right? So, Mm -hmm. um, uh, and I said, like, persistence is also too, because, you know, sometimes when you transition from, the math is, it's a big, very, very broad, right? I mean, we start Mm -hmm. with arithmetic when we're younger, and then we go to algebra, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and then we go to calculus, you know, and maybe some of us, you know, Uh, And then beyond calculus, there's, you know, um, things like differential equations and advanced math and stuff. So, but, you know, each of these like little transition points along the math way, you know, like I'd say from arithmetic to algebra, you know, it's different, you know, you Mm -hmm. just do algebra, you just have to start thinking differently, right? Right. And once you get it, you get it, right? But, you know, um, and sometimes your teachers, you know, will do a great job. And sometimes they'll say it in a way that maybe you perhaps don't understand. So that's where the persistence comes in, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, if this teacher isn't explaining it to you, maybe seek out someone else who's also in the field to, to explain it to you a different way. And maybe that way is more in line with the way you think, because we all think differently, right? So mm-hmm. you want to try to find someone that resonates with the way you think, and then, uh, or, you know, and then, and then go at it that way. You right. know, and then we go from algebra to calculus, which is a different, it's another shift, right? We have to start, Mm. so these shifts are always hard. So don't automatically think, oh, I'm not good at math, I can't do this. Just be persistent. And go at keep at it, right? Yeah. You know, eventually you you see it. Sometimes you need to see it a couple times, and then then you'll get that shift, and then and then it'll make sense. And then this is this is really the case for all your different types of math along the way. So so keep at the math and try to find someone to help you mm-hmm. um, that uh, that is that that speaks to the way you think, and then. Um, And then, you know, with the science, you know, keep up with the science. Another important thing is computer science. Like, you know, wasn't that important when I was your age? I mean, it was just sort of starting, and I was lucky enough that I actually took a computer science course in high school, and I sort of understood, Um, then I did more in college. But I really didn't learn a lot about computer science until I actually got into the research field and actually had to start programming myself um and that required a lot of persistence and work um so persistence and work are a good thing you know so that's why i'm just my theme persistence and hard work (laughs) um so uh but but computer science i think is is become way more important uh for for your age than it was when i was when i was your age so i would say computer science is definitely something and 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 do different, you know, there's different languages and different things out there. Take a few different ones because what you're learning now is gonna be, if the field changes so fast, it's gonna be right. different from when you're in college and then yeah. when you're in grad school and beyond or whatever, or profession, depending on where you launch into the work world, workforce and along that path. Um, so yeah, so anyway, that's, that's mm-hmm. what I would say. Math, science, computer science. Um, and actually, communication skills, believe it or not, yeah. communication skills you you got you got to head up on that you 're doing this blog and you 're doing a really <laughs> good job. Um, but you know when I was graduate, I was very, very shy. I would never in a million years have done this, <laughs> so I think it 's awesome but um, but yeah, so actually communication and learning how to speak to people is also uh, something that should be in your toolbox
0: yeah, so, so um, yeah. <laughs> Well, Nat, last but not least, um, well, what are some green things that maybe um, people can do and what are some green things that maybe you do in either like your workplace or at home, anything?
1: Yeah, so I am, when we're actually going into a workplace, and right now I'm working from home, uh, but I, bicycle, so I'm a bicycle commuter and I love it. <laughs> I cause I live in Boulder, Colorado. It's very easy to bike here. So Philadelphia it might be a little bit harder. Yeah. Um, but you know, so of course, you know, whatever, whatever works with your environment. But I bicycle commute. Um, I have a car that has uh, low that that gets good fuel economy. My husband has an electric car, mm-hmm. uh, and so we try to minimize our driving, um, and then uh, minimize also. Um, things that require airplane travel too. Airplane travel is actually one of the biggest things. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, in some ways, you know, having everyone starting to work virtually, like all these meetings that we usually would have to fly to, we are now uh, doing all virtually. Mm-hmm. Not that I advocate for all virtual world, because I think, you mm-hmm. know, human contact is actually yeah. a very important thing. <laughs> exactly. But I do think that we've shown that we can actually take some of the meetings that we do do um, uh, that you know that unnecessarily don't need to travel, and then you know make those virtual or local, uh, and then uh, you know only travel when we when we need to. Um, so because air travel is sort of a big one. I mean, it is a bummer because I love to travel myself, but it is a big it is a big cost in terms of emissions. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is being a localvore is what I call it, right? So um, I got this <laughs> term from. Uh, the author Barbara Kingsolver she mm-hmm. wrote a book called Animal Animal Vegetable Mineral, Mineral or something like that. Um, no, it's uh, uh, Animal Vegetable Miracle. I think that's what she her book is. Anyway, I'll look into she, it. Yeah, so uh, she it's just basically it's she talks about a year in her life where she basically grew or raised all of her all of her food, her and her family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so. And the value of um, uh, trying to eat produce um, that is grown locally and try, you know, try not to buy things that have a big carbon footprint. Like, right. so if you want, you know, something that is made in New Zealand, <laughs> maybe you don't need that. Maybe you can find that same thing that's made in New Zealand you know made near where locally you live. closer or whatever so you know so try to become a local voice. so try to you know consume things uh you know or you know like food or you know just re- regular you know commercial products or whatever that mm. is closer to home than further away and that actually is also going to be a, i think a huge a th- huge huge thing that you could do so anyway that's those are some
0: things so. I really like that term, look, local local
1: really, roar. I know it's a good one. I didn't make yeah. it up. I cannot claim it. It's not mine. <laughs>
0: right? But it's it's yeah. it's still great. It's a good term, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like <laughs> during this pandemic, I think we've actually had like a peek into what um a greener world would look like, right? Like without that much flying and like driving, yeah. we can still get work done. But like yeah. you said, human interaction interaction is yeah
1: important. yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, um, just as a reminder, we've been speaking to Miss yeah. Kristen Shields, and uh, I just want to thank you so much for joining me here to talk about climate change um, and, like, the past events and just everything like that. Yeah. And I really appreciated it. So, yeah. sure.
1: And I'm grateful well,
0: that. Oh, yeah.
1: You're quite welcome. And um, I look forward to the final product.
0: <laughs> and I'm, I'm grateful that um, scientists like you are willing to bring more awareness to um, these issues and what we can do about it.
1: Well, the, the, you know, you guys are the future. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, I, j- I just want to try to help facilitate the next generation <laughs> that's going to be, you know, shape the planet, so.
0: All right, well, thank you. If you enjoyed this thrilling episode, be sure to subscribe to be notified when a new episode is posted. Don't forget to share women in environmental science with your friends and family so they can learn more about the problems that are being solved in the science industry. I hope you enjoyed this episode and learned about the work researchers are doing in this field. This is Serenya Nathapandala signing off. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.